Hello and welcome to the National Museums Liverpool podcast regarding the present. I'm Jane Garvey. Now, there are six episodes in this series, each one exploring a different theme with voices and experiences from the present and from the past, reflecting just some of the incredible stories in the museum's collections, programmes and communities. And we are spoilt for choice. There are so many stories. There are, after all, four million objects in the museum's collections. There's the Museum of Liverpool, the World Museum, the Maritime Museum, the International Slavery Museum, the Walker Art Gallery, the Lady Lever Art Gallery, and Sudley House. There's much to enjoy and a lot to learn. Our first episode looked at the theme of love, and in the future, we're going to focus on protest, movement, and isolation. But this episode is celebrating resilience. Liverpool does not buckle, and Liverpudlians are not exactly renowned for their respect for authority, which is probably just as well. Sometimes questions have to be asked, or nothing is ever going to change. Not that it's always easy to stick your head above the parapet and make other people feel uncomfortable. We all know the last 12 months have been exceptionally tough, tough for all of us when you think about it. Whoever you are and whatever you do, you've probably been tested like never before. And the museum sector is no exception. It's been a logistical challenge for everyone. And emotionally, it's been tough on individuals missing their mates at work and their mummies. I can remember the museum's ad on the side of a Liverpool bus, bring your mummy to meet ours. To be absolutely honest with you, it was my dad who took me, but only after an enormous amount of pestering. It's worth it though. Here's Daniel O'Connor on the impact of COVID on Liverpool's museums and how it compares to what happened after the Blitz back in 1941. The last time I went to a museum was the 23rd of February 2020. It was on one of my almost weekly visits to the Wirral Transport Museum in Birkenhead. Undoubtedly, when I said it was time to go, my son would have been kicking and screaming as I tried to drag him away from watching Thomas the Tank Engine go round the track for the 150th time. I'd have said to him, don't worry, we can come back next week. Little did I know that a pandemic was going to make a liar out of me. It's been 13 months, and in that time, I've started to work in the museum industry itself, and yet I still haven't been into a venue. It was an odd couple of weeks or months, really, when the kind of news of the virus began to spread and, and we started having plans around what it may look like. This is Laura Pye, Director of National Museums Liverpool. And those plans kind of went from what would, what would we do to remain open during the virus and how would we ensure that we were doing extra cleaning and all of those kind of things to actually I think this is going to require us to shut. The last time the museum that is now known as the World Museum did have to close its doors for a significant amount of time. Happened 80 years ago this May. It wasn't a decision pondered in the boardrooms of trustees. It was sudden and it was catastrophic. I'm Ashley Cook. I'm the lead curator of antiquities at Royal Museum Liverpool and I'm responsible for the Egyptian and Near Eastern collections. On that night, bomb, 225 kilograms, so it's about the size of a motorcycle, falling through. Library, adjoining library to the museum, fire spreading, 
through the museum in a way that they had anticipated, kind of working from the basement upwards. So lots of material that was put down in the basements on um, pallets, the air circulating under the pallets, the fire just kind of moved through and just it just ignited all of those collections and it moved its way up for the ventilation system um, and broke out into the various galleries that way. So it, it was just moving its way through the building. This was, of course, the Blitz. In 1941, Liverpool was targeted by German Luftwaffe over a seven-day period from the 1st to the 7th of May. The May Blitz was the most concentrated series of air attacks on any British city area outside of London. The museum and the collections were engulfed in flames on the night of the 3rd of May. In curatorial terms, particularly for the museum's ancient Egypt collection, the fire was an absolute disaster. So before uh, the outbreak of war in 39, the collection was one of the largest in the country. The, um, one of the founders of the Egypt Exploration Fund, Amelia Edwards, who was herself a, a famous author, described the Egyptian collection as the, the finest collections of Egyptian antiquities um, outside of the, the British Museum. And that's all largely due to Joseph Mayer. The successful businessman Joseph Mayer had opened one of the first public displays of ancient Egypt antiquities in the country. In 1867, he donated all of that to what was then the Liverpool Free Library and Museum. Although pre-war, the curators worked tirelessly to document and evacuate some of the collection, much of it was lost when that fire took hold. So there's an example of a showcase with 27 steely. Curiously, it's called Case 27 as well. Steely slabs of stone or wood inscribed with text, sometimes images, and of those 27, only one was removed, and that was because it was wood, and I presume this was because it was seen as more vulnerable. The 27 left on display, including some beautiful pieces, classic examples from the New Kingdom, um, all of those 26 steely that were left in case 27 were destroyed, apart from the one wooden steely, which is not the best example, to be honest, of, of that type. That's what my work is around as well, is it's not just the objects that are physically in my care, but the, the ones that have been lost to us, because they exist in other forms. So they exist in uh, drawings, illustrations of the objects. Um, sometimes as photography, not much. But what we do have is an amazing archive of, of the, the record cards, the catalogue cards that were created of the objects. Because they weren't just done by Elaine Tankard, the curator. She got in the professors of Egyptology, her old teachers at the University of Liverpool, where she trained, to catalogue the collection. And they created these immaculate, pioneering, really, the, these record cards, because they did them in duplicate. They did ones for the, for, for the offices, for the curator, um, but they did ones for the public as well. So the could, public could look through by using the accession number on the, on the object label in the showcase. They could then go to these drawers and look through for, for, for the, um, the record card for that object. So it's a bit like online collections today. Thanks to Elaine Tankard's marvellous archiving system, Ashley has been able to bring back to life some of the stories of the items that we lost. There's one particular statue that was destroyed in the fire that we don't have a photo of, we don't have an illustration of, but we do have a physical replica hiding in plain sight in one of the city's most famous venues. But there's one exceptional example of, of an object and it, it's kind of a clone of a 14th century BC Egyptian object, a replication of the physical form of the object in marble. Um, it's a Victorian creation of, of an actual Egyptian object. And what's really fun about 
that this 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 avatar or incarnation, if you will, of this object, is that it 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 sits behind a statue, a life-size statue of Joseph Mayer. The Liverpool Town Council commissioned a statue of Joseph Mayer to go inside St George's Hall to acknowledge his gift to the people of Liverpool. And it's a statue by Giovanni Fontana, and it shows uh, Mayer um, as this dignified, well-dressed man. Um, in one hand, he's holding the deed of gift. By his left foot, there's a collection of books. And just hiding behind his right foot is this little little statue. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a, an image in miniature of a man called Nebamu, who lived and worked in 14th century Thebes in Egypt. And he's holding before him a stele, an inscribed stone. It's got 12 lines, sorry. 12 lines of hieroglyphs on there. And it was, it, was, it was a classic example of that time. And Mayer had quite a few of these in his collection and not one survived. They were all destroyed in the fire. So we, not only do we have record cards of, of the inscription, but we have this fairly faithful reproduction. Elaine Tankard was not only instrumental in the archiving of the collections, but post-war, she was responsible for rebuilding them. She travelled the length and the breadth of the country, negotiating with collectors, seeking out antiquities in order to restore Liverpool's ancient Egypt collection to its former glory. Ashley says that now he feels like he's looking after Elaine's collection. But there is one question of judgment that some people call into doubt. It's difficult sometimes when people question how irresponsible was the museum to leave the collections on display. And You've got to remember Liverpool, its importance in, in the Second World War. Not only Liverpoolians in the city, but servicemen, but refugees as well in the city as well from different parts of Europe. And the museum remained open with limited, limited displays and say material was taken out. But these limited displays gave, gave servicemen in, in the city something to do as well. And museums, I think, offer this opportunity um, for entertainment, but also, I suppose, to get a chance to forget a little for a little period of time about what's going on outside and just to lose yourself in an ancient civilization. Elaine Tancard, the, the curator of antiquities at the time, she she erected um, blackboards in the in the main hall of the museum, and she would translate um, the headlines really from the Liverpool Daily Post um, into into French. For, for refugees to, to at least get some idea of, of, the, of the news as it was coming in. But also she created a series of four-page pamphlets, guides to, to the displays, in particular the, the highlights of the collection as well. And they were published in, not only in English, but French, Czech, Polish, Dutch, and later on Norwegian. Um, so museums, you know, they're not just safe places for antiquities. And in, in this case, it wasn't a safe place for these and other collections. But they're, they're, they're also places for people. And the way people use museums is, is something you really need to consider as well as just being places for display of artefacts. They're, they're much more than that. It wasn't just the World Museum providing a service in wartime. The Walker Art Gallery was commandeered by the Ministry of Food and turned into a distribution centre for rationing books. This flexibility in use eerily echoes the current crisis that engulfs us. The doors of museums and galleries have been closed for the best part of 12 months, and coronavirus has been described as 
devastating to the arts and culture sector. But if resilience is an ability to make the most of a bad situation, then museums have it in abundance. I spoke to the director of the Association of Independent Museums, Emma Chaplin, to see how their members have been providing a valuable service in these toughest of times. What happened last year, once people were closed and they'd sort of got their heads around it, although they generally couldn't open their doors, they really wanted to connect with the communities that they serve. For example, the Museum of East Anglian Life, when people were locked up at home and not really able to get out, they um, made some of their garden spaces, their green spaces available for people who were shielding and they could book a private space in the museum grounds to go and have a safe outdoor time with their family, which was just, you know, I don't think that you can serve your community better than that. I think three of our members are acting as vaccination centres at the moment. So Black Country Living Museum's a vaccination centre, um, the Thackeray Medical Museum in Leeds, they're, they're a vaccination centre, and Salisbury Cathedral, they're, they're an AIM member because our members go beyond museums into heritage as well. But one of the nice things they've done is their organist has come in to play to people while they're queuing up to be vaccinated. And apparently, unsurprisingly, it's been really popular. People have found it really uplifting to hear beautiful organ music in the cathedral while they've been getting vaccinated. So, yeah, I think it, it shows how, you know, in, in museums generally, people, you know, will go the extra mile to make sure that we can do our best for people, when, particularly when they really need us. Everywhere you look, there are positive stories on the effect that museums and galleries have had during lockdown, whether that's through opening up gardens or digitally assisting with emergency education. But let's not pretend that this situation isn't incredibly tough for the sector. Many museums rely heavily on secondary spend in the shops and cafes. Many rely heavily on donations or ticketed events. National Museums Liverpool is no different. And as our director, Laura Pye, explains, Closing can be a logistical nightmare. I guess everybody thinks, you know, you shut the museums and you lock the front door and you all go home and, and, that, and that's fine. There was a whole load of logistics about getting people kits so that they could work from home, allowing us to continue to do meetings. How do we communicate with everyone? How do we check everybody's well? How do we make sure staff are still in the buildings, doing the collection checks, checking the buildings are okay, doing essential maintenance, feeding the animals, doing all of that kind of stuff? There was quite a lot of logistical stuff around that that we'd never that we'd never done before. And to do it and not know how long you're doing it for as well was a very it was a really odd experience. Despite the flexibility of the museum sector, a lack of visitors donating and spending their hard-earned money, with staff rents and rates to pay, COVID-19 has the potential to cripple the sector. In early March, the government announced a boost to its culture recovery fund, which now stands at £1.57 billion. But however the finances look when the doors reopen, things will be different. Before the pandemic, we were, we were planning large blockbuster exhibitions. We were looking to increase our visitor numbers. You know, we were attracting over 3 million visitors a year. We believe that, you know, this could take three to five years for us to recover fully, because I think the way in which people have Travel and visit will be different. And Liverpool is a city that was that was and, and is very reliant on its visitor economy, actually. And we need that to recover for the museums to bounce back. But I think also we need to, we've talked in the museums around how we need to use our outdoor spaces better. We need to think about 
exhibitions that are developed from our own collections rather than us flying stuff in from all over the world as often. And that's not to say we'll never bring in a touring exhibition or any of those kind of things. But I think it has made us think about not just the pandemic, but, you know, the environmental crisis that we that we face in the world at the moment has made us think about really, is it responsible for us to have this constant churning, major exhibitions flying all over the world kind of approach that we've had up until now? So I think there's more we need to do about ensuring that we use our own collections and our own expertise to put on great exhibitions for our visitors. At the time of recording, May 17th is the day set by the UK government when I can finally fulfil that promise I made to my son. There will be many who, like those refugees and sailors during the war, will breathe a huge sigh of relief when museums and galleries do reopen their doors. So I, th- I think there is an impact on people's health and well-being. I, you know, I know from a personal point of view, one of the things I love most about the job is when it's really difficult and when I'm drowning in budget sheets or whatever else, I can always walk out onto the gallery and just seeing people's response to our to our exhibits and to our exhibitions. And that reminds me why the job is worth doing in the first place. I think we have a lot of visitors who use our museums and galleries on a regular basis as part of their social interactions, their well-being, all of those kind of things. I remember the day we reopened the walker a few people were tweeting saying that they were going to be there on, on our opening day and that they just wanted to sit in front of their favourite painting. But it also shows the impact of what happens when you take that away. Even people who maybe don't regularly visit in that kind of way have really felt the loss of museums and galleries because they feel like it's been taken away from them. Maybe you don't always have to do something, but the fact that you know you can is reassuring. And when you know you can't, that's that's an issue. We've been around 150 years. This has been incredibly difficult for us, but absolutely we will survive COVID and we will come out the other side of it. That's Laura Pye, Director of National Museums Liverpool, looking to the future. And I really loved hearing there about the work of Elaine Tankard, who clearly just put so much thought into how the museum could go the extra mile to help people during the war. Brilliant. The Liverpool-registered ship MV Derbyshire sank in a typhoon in the South China Sea in 1980 on a journey from Canada to Japan. It was the largest British-registered merchant vessel ever to be lost at sea, and all 44 people on board lost their lives. The original report into the incident was described by relatives as a whitewash. They could have stopped, they could have given up, but they didn't. Sheer determination to get to the truth not only exonerated their much-missed and much-loved family members, it has made the entire industry safer. Here's Daniel O'Connor again. If I was to introduce the next story by telling you that it involves a 1980s tragedy in which Liverpool lives were lost, the immediate explanations blamed those that died and the families of those victims having a long, hard road to justice, I know which story will spring to mind. The following story isn't about Hillsborough, but the similarities are vast. This is the story of the MV Derbyshire. In the Life on Board Gallery in the Maritime Museum, Paul Lambert, MBE, chairman of the Derbyshire Family Association, tells this story about the death of his brother and the incredible fight to find out how it happened. Derbyshire was built on Teesside under Haverton Hill Yard in Newcastle. They were a new concept in shipping. So what they did, they took the design of a bulk carrier, 
the design of a tanker and they put them together and they extrapolated it, made it bigger. These ships were huge. She was classified as A1. She was insured and she was owned by Bibby. So all in all, she was a, a British ship through and through. Paul's youngest brother, Peter Lambert, was just 19 years of age when seafaring rules meant that he had to take a job on board the MV Derbyshire. Having previously turned down two voyages, the rules stated that you were not allowed to reject a third, else you would face expulsion from the merchant navy. Peter wasn't unhappy to join the voyage, and afterwards he'd planned on marrying his long-term girlfriend. Yes, um, Peter, he left school when he was 16. We don't know why he joined the merchant navy. None, no one in the family has ever been away to sea. On the morning he was going, you know, that was the last time we ever saw Peter. Peter Lambert and the Derbyshire's final voyage began on the 11th of July 1980, when the ship left Canada carrying 157,000 tonnes of iron ore. A few days before arrival in its final destination of Japan, the Derbyshire was overwhelmed by Typhoon Orchid. Again, totaling 36 hours, that ship would have been battered by these waves. There were no survivors. 44 people, 42 well-trained and experienced crew and two wives. After the sinking, the bereaved families were helped by the British International Sailor Society, ran by the Reverend Peter McGrath. We were concerned that we were being kept in the dark as to what had actually happened to the Derbyshire. There was nothing forthcoming. And then one of the sister ships, one of the Derbyshire sister ships called the Kowloon Bridge went down in Bantry Bay in, in Ireland. And that put forward this idea that there should be a general inquiry. At last, we thought we're going to get an inquiry. We're going to see and we're going to learn what happened to our loved ones. That's all we want, full stop. It was a complete whitewash. We were not happy with the findings of the inquiries. They didn't seem to take an awful lot of note of the families itself. And at the findings, when the findings came out that it was a, an act of God, really, that's what they were saying. Dave Ramwell was asked what he thought about it, being a captain. He said, Derbyshire sank twice, once in the South China Sea and once in the Sea of Whitewash. I wrote a letter to the families telling them the Derbyshire families has to change and become a campaigning group. Do you all agree with this? And they came back and they said, yes, we agree. We'll go for a full reopening. I wanted it because I'd promised my mother in 1980 that I would find out what happened to the Derbyshire, why Peter died. When asking what new evidence they would accept the government, they said, any evidence from the Derbyshire? In other words, go and find her. How was a group of families going to find a ship? Surely, if you could have found a Derbyshire, they would have found it. But we asked the Seafarers Unions and the ITF, the International Transport Workers Federation, they said they would put up the necessary funds for this company to go back and find the ship. And on June the 8th, 1994, they'd found the ship. She was in a thousand pieces. 
we were offered the chance to have a small inquiry, just based on the assessor's report, and the blame would be shared equally amongst everybody. And I went round to the families. I showed them. And every one of them said, we're going for a full inquiry. John Prescott became Deputy Prime Minister, Secretary of State of Transport. He called the first inquiry whitewash. And he said he wanted to see reports calling for a reopen formal investigation. He needed to see these problems with the assessor's report. Anyway, John Prescott came back, phoned me up. So I'm just in the next half hour going to make an announcement to the press. I'm ordering a full reopening investigation into the cause of the loss of the Emily Derbyshire. 19 years work, 19 years commitment, 19 years of pain and giving up so much. And John Prescott had just made all that worthwhile. The judges report, and people can get a copy of it, completely exonerated the crew, completely. A gang of nobodies, just people who care. We proved so many people wrong. He asked for a list of recommendations about ship safety. That was something that was very, very important to us. 22 recommendations came out of that court that would make bulk carrier and shipping a lot safer. The recommendations included a black box, which aeroplanes have been using for I don't know how long, and that rule was implemented to start in all merchant ships from 2007. Thousands of lives will be saved, and all over the world, seafarers would be saved, and that mothers and fathers and wives and husbands could go to bed at night knowing that their sons or daughters were a lot safer. Seafarers' life. It's just as important to the Prime Minister, the King, anybody, to his family or to her family, and it should be protected. It's a dangerous life at sea. I honestly believe there are seafarers having a meal with the families that wouldn't have been there if we had not carried on this campaign. Paul Lambert, MBE. Anything but a nobody the man who kept his promise to his mum and brought about real change in the shipping industry. For more on the stories we've featured this time, you can go to liverpoolmuseums.org.uk. You've been listening to a podcast by National Museums Liverpool on resilience. In order for us to remain resilient, your support makes a real difference now more than ever think about becoming a member or donating search for liverpool museums membership to join and support regarding the present was hosted by the incredible jane garvey 
stories put together by me, Daniel O'Connor, with the help of our curatorial team. It was mixed and mastered by the sublime Sam Augusta Onomatopoeia post-productions. Our artwork is by the superb Safa Khan, and the Ace theme music is licensed to us by Jimmy Hinson of Big Giant Circles.